the scripture reading for today is from Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 through 35. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. There we go. It's easier to speak when you're not muted. Um, thank you, Aaron. And uh, let's open in a real quick word of prayer for uh, this passage. Uh, Lord, um, thank you for your ongoing mercy to us. Uh, even in this, this time of uh, pandemic, Lord, your mercy shines through as it could be so much worse. We think of uh, the bubonic plague and some of the other things that have hit humanity. And through your common grace, you have given humanity the tools to discover viruses and tools to control and to defeat viruses. And uh, Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. But Lord, as we look now to your word, we see something even greater than that, something even more powerful than that. And so Lord, as we study this passage about Moses' face shining, Lord, would you help us to see and to understand and, and appreciate what you're trying to tell us. Lord, open your word to us. Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. So, um, in the introduction to his 2014 book, Ordinary, um, church historian Mike Horton kind of goes through a brief history of Christianity's ongoing fascination with the next big thing. So he mentions things like revivalism, Pentecostalism, decoding prophecies to calculate the day of Jesus' return, what would Jesus do bracelets, promise keepers, Radical youth group culture, uh, the emergent church, and on and on and on. Now, not all of those things are bad or necessarily good. It's just they were all in the spotlight as the next big thing for a little bit. So as he's going through this, this kind of recalculation of all of these things that we've been fascinated with, in the end, he says, this movement mentality keeps us restless and makes ordinary life in the submission to the, and, and um, I'm sorry, this movement mentality keeps us restless and makes ordinary life and submission to an actual church seem intolerably confining and terribly ordinary. And so 
that's something that our culture has been dealing with all along. And, and does it ever feel like Christianity is just kind of ordinary? Like what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't really amount to much or change anything, uh, feel a little bit mundane, um, especially when we're in this kind of lockdown position where we can't interact with each other, we can't go out and, and, um, and engage with other people. Uh, sometimes Christianity can just begin to feel like it's just another part of our life. You know, like we, we watch Netflix for two hours and we read our Bible for 20 minutes and you know, those kind of things. What we're going to see today is an event that was truly extraordinary. I mean, it was really something. And then what we'll do after we look at that event is we'll take a New Testament perspective on that and find out that what we have in Christianity far surpasses that in its ordinariness, in, in its regularity. So let's take a look at the story about Moses' face shining. Um, it starts off that he was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Um, what had happened, you remember previously, is Moses was with the Lord. God said, go down to the mountain because the people have broken out and they worship the idol. Moses went down and dealt with it. He came back up on the mountain. And last week we saw him pleading with God to maintain his faithfulness to Israel. Um, God had said, look, Israel can go and I'll clear out the promised land for him, but I'm not going with you guys because if I do, I'll kill you. And so Moses interceded. He said, look, if you don't go with us, we're nothing special. And so that was what he was pleading. And after he discussed that with God, he looked at God and he said, show me your glory. And that was what we looked at last week was God said, nobody can see my face. So what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'll pass before you. And then when I've passed by, you can look and you can see the back part. In other words, the afterglow of his glory marching before him. And so that's where we left it last week. Now Moses is back up on the mountain with God for 40 days and for 40 nights. And this is kind of like what had happened before because he was up there for 40 days when Israel went nuts with the, the false idol. Um, so it's beginning to sound like, oh my gosh, are they going to do it again? And the story you've just heard read, it's a little different. Something different happens. So while he's up there, he neither eats bread nor drinks water. So he's, he's not just fasting. He's not taking anything in. That is not physically possible. You would be in horrible condition if you didn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. The reason that Moses can do it is not because that's what we're supposed to go replicate. It's because he is in the presence of God. God is sustaining him in a, in a, a supernatural way so that he can be with him. And what verse 28 ends with, it says, and he wrote on the tablets of the, the uh, tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. Um, one of my little pet peeves is they miss the capitalization there. Um, it should be a capital H he wrote because it's not Moses that carved it the second time. It's God. Because remember, beginning of the chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. So Moses, you broke them, you make new ones. But he says, and I will write on the tablets the words of the first tablets, which you broke. So God had promised that he would write them. So when Moses comes down from the mountain with those tablets again, it's again God's handwriting on those tablets. Um, it's, it's the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. Um, this, these marks or these words of the covenant is what that is. So that's what happens. That's the situation. So as Moses comes down the mountain, um, beginning in verse 29, uh, he comes down the mountain with the tablets of the testimony in his hand. And it says that Moses didn't know that his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
Um, Moses is coming down the mountain. He has no idea that he's glowing, that, that the glory of the Lord that he's just looked at is still shining on him. Uh, so it's, it's an amazing story. And it begins to sound like chapter 32 again, doesn't it? He comes down the mountain. He's got the tablets of the testimony in his hand. And last time he came down the mountain and he heard singing. And Joshua said, wow, that singing, it sounds like a, a war in the camp. And uh, Moses says, no, that's a party. And so he knew what was going on. So we're kind of a little nervous about this. But this time, um, when Moses comes down the mountain, uh, he doesn't break the tablets. And there's no idol being worshipped in, the, in the, the tent or in the, the uh, camp. But something different is going on. Moses' face is shining. It is glowing because, it says, because he was talking with God. So while he was up there and he was speaking with God, it's God's glory is shining on his face. It's not Moses' glory. It's God's glory shining in his face. So God's glory had passed by him, right? And he didn't see the face of God. He saw the afterglow of God. And so just the afterglow of the passing glory, this, this glancing blow of God's glory would have such a profound impact that Moses' face would shine, that the glory would shine out of it. That's how glorious, how, how beautiful the Lord is, is that glancing blow would do that to him. And so what's been going on up there is God has been discussing with Moses the covenant and the law and the tabernacle and all of those kind of things. So what Moses is doing is Moses is so immersed in the things of God. He is speaking to God, remember how it was described earlier, as a friend, face to face. He's chatting with God up there. He's discussing, he's um, going through all of these things. And he is so immersed in what God is doing that all of the mundane concerns of the world just fade. And mundane is a good word for it. It comes from the Latin word mundus, which means world. So while Moses is up on the mountain, he's having this, this wonderful experience with God. The, the cares of the world are, are faded from his consciousness. He's not worrying about judging Israel. He's not thinking about cleaning his tent. He's not worried about patching his clothes. He is just immersed in the most beautiful moment possible. This is where we get that phrase. Have you ever heard that phrase, um, they had a mountaintop experience? It, it was something like this, where Moses goes up on the mountain and he's so wrapped up in God and so enveloped in what God's doing, everything else seems to pass. And so when somebody says they're having a mountaintop experience, that's that experience is they're so deep into the things of God, they don't want to come back down and have to deal with a car that won't start or a lost house key or paying bills. Um, those are just too mundane. But Moses is, is so wrapped up in this, even the mundane concerns of eating and drinking have faded. They're gone. It just is su such a, a wonderful experience. So when he's up there, and he's talking with God. His face is glowing because of his, his discussion with God. We'll, talk, we'll unpack that a little bit more later. And so when he comes down the mountain, Aaron and all the people of Israel, when they saw him, they were afraid of him. They, they wouldn't draw near to him. They were, they were frightened of him. Um, you don't see too many people's faces glowing. So it, it's kind of a startling thing. And the word there for, um, for his face glowing uh, it, it's more than just like an inward glow. The, the word has to do with uh, beams of light shining out. Um, and, and I posted this on Facebook, but I'll share it anyway. Um, the cognate verb, noun of that verb uh, is the word horn. Uh, it's spelled almost identical. 
And so because there was a translation error in the, in the Vulgate, the Latin version of the uh, Old Testament, uh, a lot of medieval portrayals of Moses, including one by Michelangelo, he has horns because it says that he didn't realize that his face uh, had horns. Um, that's not what was going on. But you, you picture those like radiant beams of light shining out. That kind of is like horns. That's, that's a similar kind of thing as where it's shining out. So this is not Moses' internal radiance. This is his glowing because of God. And it scares the daylights out of people. You don't see people doing that very often. Um, so were the people just afraid because this is such a freaky thing to see somebody's face glowing? Um, I, that could be part of it, I, I think. But there's a little bit more going on. Um, there's a, a Jewish commentator. He said, the notion of divine radiance enveloping the head or face of a god a king or a priest appears in numerous Mesopotamian texts. So, and, and so it would probably have been a familiar idea to the ancient Hebrew audience. So they get it. They know what's going on. It's not just, this is weird, his face is glowing. They have this kind of background that's telling them this divine encounter, hap this is what happens in a divine encounter. So what I think is going on is the people are not necessarily frightened of Moses because his face is glowing. I think what frightens them is what frightened them back in, in chapter 20, which is the glory of God. So do you remember when God descended on the mountain and began to speak and, and he announced to them the, the, the Ten Commandments? Their response was this. This is chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. This is that same glory again, and they're having that same response. The problem is these people are terrified of God. They're, they won't draw near to him. Moses is having the same experience. He's having it even more intimately because he's the only one allowed to go up on the mountain. And he's not drawing back in fear, though he's probably trembling. As a matter of fact, there's a New Testament reference that says Moses trembled. Um, but his fear doesn't drive him away as it does with the Israelites they're terrified of this glory of God. And so they, they don't want to draw too close. But Moses, it says, called to them and Moses talked with them. Um, in this brief section, that's a couple of the words that get repeated a lot in this section is Moses by name. Um, you don't have too many of he said, but Moses by name. And the other word that gets repeated is, is um, to talk or to speak. There's a lot of talking and speaking going on in the face of this glory. That'll become important later on as well. So Moses calls them, he comforts them, he says, here's what's going on. He relates to them the story about what God has been telling him on the mountain. And it says, and when Moses finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. His, his face glowing, his, his, his radiance of God's glory was too much. And so to appease the people, he, he puts a veil over his face, just descends right over him and hides the glory so that they won't be terrified. So then he, the story goes on. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, the people of Israel, um, he would tell the his people of Israel what he was commanded. So here's the picture. It says, whenever Moses went in, um, went into what? Well, it could be when he went into the cloud on the top of the mountain. But I think what that's getting at is, remember a couple of weeks ago, the, the tent of meeting outside the camp. 
Moses would go inside the tent of meeting and he would stand there and the glory of the Lord in the cloud would descend in front of the tent and he would speak to God there face to face. So I think maybe that's what he's getting at is when he would meet him at the tent of meeting, he, he would remove the veil and speak with God and he would talk to him face to face as a friend speaks. But when he would come back out to explain to the people, he would put the veil back over his face. So what's happening there is it seems like that is the typical ministry of Moses through the rest of the Pentateuch until he dies at the end of Deuteronomy, but he never mentions it again. Um, this, is, this is kind of the introduction, and so we don't get a retelling of the story of the veil or any of that kind of stuff, but it sure sounds like it was an ongoing thing more than just once or twice. Um, perhaps it went on until the tabernacle was constructed because then God's glory would be present in, this, in a different place. The truth is we just don't know. We don't have any more details on it. Um, and so that's it. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Anybody want to have such a close experience with God that you glow? Um, doesn't that sound inviting? It sounds, man, that's so cool. That's so different than my ordinary experience with God. Um, I wish I had that mountaintop experience. But I've got great news for you. We get something better. If you can believe that, there's, there's something that's much better that goes on. And there is... Um, Fortunately, I don't have to work on the application. There's a New Testament application of this in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, Moses, or um, not Moses, I'm sorry. Chapter 3, Paul is talking about his ministry, the ministry of the new covenant. And so beginning in verse 4, this is what he says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, of, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We'll come back and unpack that in a little bit. Here's where the Moses part comes in. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit be even, have even more glory? So here's what he's saying. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. The lesser in this case is the old covenant. And he refers to the old covenant specifically as the ministry of death. We'll unpack that in a moment. But what is noteworthy here is the opposite of the ministry of death is not the ministry of life, but what he calls the ministry of righteousness. So the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of righteousness is the opposite of the ministry of death. So here's, here's where he goes. He says, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, what the old covenant did was it contained external letters that were written outside of us. And, and that was a ministry of death, not because there was anything wrong with the old covenant, not because there was anything wrong with the law. The law was perfect. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans, the law was perfect. It was given exactly right. The problem was, us. We couldn't keep that law. We refused to keep that law. We weren't interested in keeping that law. And what makes it worse is that law is external to us. It's written outside of us. And so when we go through Romans, which will start next week, we'll unpack that idea of what the function of the law does in us. But this is a ministry of death because it can't guarantee, it can't give to you what it demands. It demands obedience. It demands righteousness, but it doesn't give it to you. It just displays it externally and says, this is what you must do. 
So that's the ministry of death written in stone. Even that ministry was so glorious that Moses' face shone. It was such a glorious thing. Even though it couldn't do what it, what it demanded, it was still a glorious and a wonderful thing. So Paul's arguing now from if that had that much glory, look at the new covenant. The new covenant does something that the old covenant can't. Won't that have much more glory? Won't it even be more glorious? So here's where he goes. He says, for if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So the law comes, the law says, do this and live, and gives you no ability to do that and live. And so it is a, a, a ministry of condemnation. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't mercy and grace in it, because not only did the law say, do this and live, the law also came along and said, and when you don't do that, here's the sacrifice that you must offer. So there's still mercy in it. But by itself, the law is a ministry of condemnation. It can't give you what you need. So if that had that much glory, the ministry of righteousness will far exceed it. If the ministry that said, you're this bad, and you, you can't do anything about it, you just have to offer sacrifice. If that had that much glory, what about this new ministry, this new ministry that has righteousness, this ministry of the Spirit, how much more glory will that have? And he goes on, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So here's what he's saying. Um, he's saying that that old covenant, which is passing away, it's coming to an end. As that departs, it's being eclipsed by something even greater, something more glory, uh, something more glorious. And what I noticed as I was reading this is I was used to this story having the word fade in it, um, the, the, the glory that would fade away. They couldn't look on Moses' face because of the glory fading. And so I used to think that the people would look at Moses, they would see the glory, and what scared him was that it was fading away. Um, that's, that's because that's the way the New American Standard and the Revised Standard Version translated a word that really doesn't mean fade. Um, it's used a number of times in the Bible, all but two are by Paul. And what that word means in every case is a thing has come to its completion. A thing has run out of efficacy. It can't do anything anymore. It is finished. It is, it is done with what it was doing. Not that it was fading out. It's done is what his point is. So when, when we look at this, don't think that what was scary to them was that they saw Moses and the glory faded out of his face. They saw Moses and in Moses' face, they saw God's glory and that terrified them. And that in Moses' face could only last so long because it was going to come to an end. It would have a finish. It would complete at some point. And after that would come something that would far surpass it. So as glorious as it was to go up on the mountain with Moses or come down the mountain and see him glowing, what we have eclipses that. It goes far beyond it. So let's continue with Paul in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face if the Israelites not, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, they read the Old Covenant with the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. So here's where, Moses, or here's where Paul goes with this. The people were so terrified, they were so afraid that Moses would put that veil over his face. So they may not see what Paul calls 
the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So the outcome of what was being brought to an end, if we understand Paul in a broader context, is the, the ministry of condemnation. What is brought to an end is this brings condemnation. And so they couldn't look at the glory because they knew because of the glory they would be condemned. So Moses put the veil over his face to hide that so he could communicate to them. And then Paul goes on and he says, to this day, um, the veil remains unlifted. So Moses is well and truly dust by this point. His body is gone. The veil is probably long gone too. So what's Paul getting at? Well, what Paul is getting at here is he's using this metaphor, and this gets a little tricky because what he's going to do is he's going to start shifting this veil around some. So before we look any further, let me explain what's happening. The purpose of the veil was to shield God's glory from the person who couldn't look at it. So the God's glory was on Moses' face, so the, the veil would shield his face so people couldn't see it. Now where he's going to go is he's going to talk about the veil being over human hearts. And the veil being over human hearts doesn't mean that the glory is inside the heart and we don't want to shine it out. The glory has moved from Moses' face to fill the entire world. And so some people's hearts have a veil over it, so they can't see that glory. Um, and so that's moved from there. And then in the end, he says, and then we with unveiled faces. So our face is now unveiled. So you see he's moving it around a little bit. The idea is to keep track of what is being shielded from God's glory and what is being exposed to God's glory. So keep that in mind, because um, it confused me earlier this week. So their minds have been hardened, is what it says. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. So he's looking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, his Jewish kinsmen, and he's saying, when Moses is read in the synagogue, when they pick up the Old Covenant, when they pick up the, the five books of Moses and they read them, there's a veil over their hearts. They can't hear it. They can't hear the glory of God in that, that message. They can't hear what that message was supposed to do for them because there's a veil. They refuse to see the God's glory. They're just as afraid of God's glory as the Israelites of Moses' day were. So when Moses is read, nothing. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do because they won't listen. Um, but that, that's bad news, but there's good news coming. Because it says, because only through Christ is that veil taken away. And, and this is that idea that when you read the Old Testament, and you're going through and you're reading all of these stories, you can get lost in the details and all the, the uh, strange things that are going on. But what will remove the veil from your eyes when you're reading that is to see Christ in it, to see Jesus in it, because only Jesus can take that veil away. So instead of reading the law and being terrified of it, you can read the law and see Christ in it and have that veil removed. I remember as a very, very young Christian, I'd been doing Bible study with a, a little devotional book and it had, you know, uh, read these verses and had a couple of devotional writings. And after, um, I don't know, how, maybe a year of that, I realized, you know, I never look in the Old Testament. It's always New Testament stuff. I'll just pop open the Old Testament. So I open up my Bible, flip it open, and I'm like in Leviticus or something. And I start reading and I went, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> it scared me pretty bad. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I'm going back to the New Testament until I get this figured out. That's the effect. If, if you don't know that it's Jesus in the Old Covenant, if you're not looking for him to remove that veil, it's only bad news. It's only condemnation. So to this day, they hear that because only Christ can remove it. And it says, he goes on, he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. There's the good news. There's the hope, is there is a way for that veil to be removed. So when the Holy Spirit turns somebody to God, when he, when he draws somebody in, the veil is taken away, and now they can see Jesus Christ. They can see that glory. They can behold that glory of God. And that's where he's going to go with this. So he says, the Old Testament, kind of bring this back together. One of the commentators on this passage said, Paul is a little rambling, um, and he does move around a bit. So let's kind of gather this back up. Paul is saying, we have a ministry of, con of not of condemnation, not of unrighteousness, not of law. We have a, con a ministry of righteousness. We have a ministry of the Holy Spirit. That was an old covenant. Now, when you hear old covenant, don't think all the Old Testament. The old covenant, the part that faded away that we learned from Hebrews is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with Moses, that law. That was what would we refer to as the old covenant. Uh, we get confused because we call the Bible the Old Testament and the New, but it's the old covenant. That, that portion was fading away. That was going away. That was a ministry of death. That was a ministry not carved in hearts of flesh, but on tablets of stone. It was etched in stone. It was external. It could only announce what you're doing wrong, but it couldn't bring anything to help. The, the ministry that Paul has, this new covenant ministry, is something different. It's a ministry of the Spirit. So listen to where he goes. Um, he says, yes, whenever, um, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. How do we get there? The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So this is the ministry of the Spirit, is freedom. Freedom from the veil, freedom from the law, freedom from all of that external things, and something else. So listen to where he goes. And um, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as, we, as the veil has been removed from our faces, we are not sheltered from it. Now we're looking at the glory of God. We're beholding the glory of God. Remember I said the, the, she, the um, veil moves around a bit. So now it's on our faces. It's removed from our face. And since it's removed, now we behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold that, we are being transformed into the same image. And what does he mean by being transformed into the same image? Um, what he's talking about here is, it goes back to what he said earlier, which is because Jesus Christ has taken the veil away. So as Jesus Christ has taken the veil away, we behold the glory, and we'll see what we means by beholding the glory in a second. We are transformed into that image. What image? Well, according to Romans 8, we are being transformed into the image of God's Son. He says, for, uh, beginning in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified in a past tense. We, as we behold the glory, as we see the glory, we are being transformed into that image. We are being shaped and transformed into the image of the Son. We're becoming more like Jesus Christ. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. And here's the hope we have, because it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it sometimes. He says, 
from one degree of glory to another. That's the ordinary Christian life. That is the day-to-day, get up in the morning and do your Bible study. That's the day-to-day, get up in the morning and pray. Get up in the morning and reach out to somebody who you know in, in the church is struggling. Um, pick up that Christian book that you've had on your nightstand forever and read. Spend some time in those things because it's through those things that the Holy Spirit is trans, uh, transforming us into the image of God's glory from one degree to the next. So here's, here's one of the big degrees that we face. When the veil is removed from our face or our hearts and we see Jesus Christ, we are given a new heart. And what Paul had been talking about earlier in chapter three is the ministry is not written on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. So as the Holy Spirit comes in us, he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that is pliable, a heart that's inclined toward God, not rock solid against him. And instead of inscribing the words of the law externally on that tablet of stone and then shoving it in your face, the Holy Spirit comes and he writes it on your heart. He affects your desires and your emotions, your will, are all affected by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you are now bent towards obedience. So that's how you can see the glory of God and be transformed into that image because the Holy Spirit is on the inside behind the veil working on you and changing you from one degree of glory to the next. But we've got this huge hurdle in that right now we're new hearts, new desires, new emotions, a new spirit, but the same old flesh, the same old body that we're trucking around in from before we knew Christ to we, when we're after that. And so this body has got this tendency to go in a specific way. It's got these habits built in. And so that's why Paul can talk about this war between the flesh and the body or the flesh and the spirit is we're wrestling through this and saying, why don't I do what I want to do? And and those kind of things. So we've got this hope. We've got this promise. We get this vision. We're being transformed slowly. But until this body is raised again, we're going to war with it. We're going to continue to fight with it. And so we have this hope. We have this, this promise. We have this newness of heart, and we're looking forward to that so that we can be changed from degree to degree, one moment to the next. And so this is how he ends the section. He says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is doing all of this work in us. So when I said when, when we have the veil removed and we behold the glory of God, what are we looking at? What do we see? Well, a little bit further on, Paul is going to unpack that just in the first portion of the next chapter. In chapter 4, verse 6, this is what he says. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're not looking at the face of Moses with these external tablets in his hand saying, Do this and live. We are looking at, with the veil removed from our face, we're we're looking at the the person of Jesus Christ, this perfect man. Um, Ramey sang it this morning about he, he came and he became a man for us, and he lived the way that humanity is intended to, it's supposed to, without sin, with constant communion with God. He did it as a human being, and and that was pictured as a promise to us of where we're going we will be conformed to his image. That's the image that we're being transformed moment by moment into. And so this goes back to that ordinary thing at the beginning. And this is Mike Horton's book. It's overall pretty good. He isn't too 
um, he doesn't pick on people too much. He's, he's trying to build a different point, but he does point out um, our fascination, uh, we'll just evangelicals fascination because that's our tribe with the new and we've got to have something else and we've got to have something different and let's do this new thing. And this new thing will give us a, a fresh taste of God. And what Horton's point is, is God has given us very ordinary things to lead us to the next thing, to increase our faith, to build us into the image of Christ. We do them every day on a daily basis. And so they begin to feel ordinary and boring. And where is my mountaintop experience? And what Horton is encouraging us to do and what I'm encouraging you to do is not neglect those things. Those are the very things that when we look at Moses and we say, look at how much glory he had. His face was shining. Isn't that wonderful? We can look to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and say, but our ministry is better than that. The, the glory that Moses had gets eclipsed because the glory that Moses had was in Moses' face. He didn't share it with anybody else. He put a veil over it. The new covenant, this new ministry that we have, that veil is taken away and that glory is shared by all his people because the Holy Spirit is in all his people doing that same work but he does it in ordinary ways in, in regular things that we need to continue to walk in. So I know, especially in this, this um, social distancing, this isolation kind of thing, it can be really easy to drift, to begin to kind of neglect those things. Or, um, you know, I woke up at, at six, but you know, I didn't actually do anything until about eight 30 and, and to begin to kind of lose our focus. And, and the next thing you know, it was two. And I don't know how that happened. Uh, or am I only speaking for myself? I'm, I'm proud. I'm sure I'm only speaking for myself. <laughs> so what you have to do is, is you have to fight that. And the good news is you have a powerful ally fighting for you. The Holy Spirit is, is this is his ministry. This is what he's doing in you. And so wrestle through those things and, and pray. Uh, so when it's now nine o'clock and you're still having, you're still in your pajamas and going, wait, what did I do this morning? That's a time you can stop and pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you show me the way out of this and help me not neglect those things? Because what we have, as wonderful as Moses' experience was, what we have is even more glorious. And I, that seems like a weird place to end our time in the book of Exodus because it's chapter 34. It's not the end of the book. Um, but I think it's really appropriate because it's setting us up for the book of Romans. Because what Romans is going to do is unpack more of what Paul has been saying here about the new ministry is so much better than the old. The, the, the old couldn't do what it demanded. The new does these wonderful things. And so that's where we'll start next week is with the book of Romans. We'll begin to look at what it is that Paul is teaching us. And the overall picture, I think the snapshot of the entire book of Romans is the idea of sin and salvation. And where it captured my heart was in the picture in chapter 11 of the olive tree and, and these branches being removed from the olive tree and these wild branches being brought in and the root is holy and the tree grows. And, and that is kind of where he goes and why he's dealing with the question of sin and salvation and that kind of thing. So that's where we'll start next week is, is with the book of Romans. And that was the book of Exodus. Um, instead of going through all the details of the tabernacle and all that stuff, I hope we got a flavor for, for the story of it, of what was happening, what was going on. And now we're ready to lean into um, the book of Romans and hear what it is that God has to say to us to explain some of the things that we saw. And so that's where we're going next week. So let's close in a word of prayer. 
Father, uh, thank you for the ministry of righteousness, the ministry that brings life, Lord, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, thank you for including us in this new covenant, this new covenant that can not only demand, but promise and provide. And so, Lord, would you please continue to work in us as we're stumbling because our days are disrupted, our schedules are upside down. Lord, would you continue to work in us to, to uh, transform us from one degree of glory to the next and conform us to the beautiful image of your son so that we may with uncovered faces shine forth your glory to a watching world. And Lord, I pray for those who have that veil still over their heart, who when they hear Moses read are still not hearing that Jesus Christ is calling to them. Lord, that veil preventing them from saying, I really am that bad and Jesus really is that great and not being driven that way. So Lord, would you continue to remove veils and remove them one at a time, Holy Spirit, in the, the right and the proper way that you know how, and bring many sons to glory, we pray. And we ask all of this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.